Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. For the second week in a row, we're exploring how to become wise from James 1, 5 through 8. Uh, Wisdom, of course, is an incredibly valuable commodity. The Scripture says we should seek it before riches or fame or beauty or power. It's to be treasured above essentially all things. So how do we get our hands on it? That's what James is laying out for us in James 1, 5 to 8. Let's begin, uh, as we have been doing over the past few weeks, let's begin by reading this passage in its context, starting in verse 2 and continuing through verse 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Earlier this year, University of Louisville student Jackson Logsdon was presented with the opportunity of a lifetime. While attending a women's basketball game, he was chosen to participate in a halftime shooting contest. Uh, The winner would walk away with $38,000. That's a lot of ramen noodles, folks. Uh, You can can hang a lot of Pink Floyd posters in your dorm room with $38,000. Of course, for a prize that big, you know there's got to be a catch, right? And there was. In order to win the $38,000, Jackson had to hit a layup a free throw, a three-point shot, and a half-court shot in just 30 seconds. In case you're not too familiar with basketball, that's hard. That's really hard. Forget about just making the half-court shot, which is hard enough as it is. Even if you make your shots, just grabbing your own rebound and covering that much ground in 30 seconds, it's not easy. You're basically going to have to hit all your shots on your first try or get a lucky rebound to make it happen. The contest started with Jackson beside the basket to hit his first shot, the layup. The clock begins. Jackson hits the layup, no problem. Easy. He grabs the rebound and races out to the free throw line, drains it. So far, so good. 
Jackson then runs out to the three-point line. He attempts a shot from the left wing, and he misses. It's, it's All of a sudden, it's not looking so good. But after grabbing his rebound, he makes another attempt from the right wing. This time, it's nothing but net. The crowd starts cheering as Jackson sprints out to half court and, and starts lining up for the last shot of the contest, the, the hardest one, the half court shot. The PA announcer starts counting down, eight, seven, six. There, there's not going to be any time to grab a rebound and shoot again. This one's got to count. Jackson runs up to the half court line. He heaves up his shot and swish. He made it. Crowd's going wild. Jackson's running around the court in disbelief. It's, it's pandemonium in the arena. $38,000. It would almost be enough to pay for an entire year of Jackson's out-of-state tuition at Louisville. It's exactly the sort of thing that a college student like Jackson needs. After the contest, though, the euphoria quickly turned to disappointment. There was a condition to the contest. Million Dollar Media, the contest sponsor, had stipulated that contest participants could not have played high school basketball in the past six years. Jackson, age 20, had actually played three years of high school basketball, mostly coming off the bench. He had lied to one of the company's representatives so he could participate in the contest. He was not an eligible contestant, so he was disqualified. That's fairly common for most contests, isn't it? I mean, they, they promise fabulous prizes, but they usually come with conditions. And by the way, if you're worried about Jackson, don't be. He didn't go away empty-handed. The school's athletic department agreed to pay for his meals and books for two years. And, and he was pretty fortunate to get that because we all know most contests are going to come with stipulations. And if you don't meet the contest terms and conditions, then you're not eligible. You've probably entered your name into some contest at one point or another in your life. Maybe it was an athletic competition of one sort or another, or, or an art or writing competition. Maybe it was even just a sweepstakes. If so, then you know how this works. In order to get the prize, even free ones, you often have to meet a certain set of conditions. Well, that's essentially what we're going to find here in James 5, 1-8 as well. In this passage, James tells us how to gain a, a remarkable prize, a prize that's better than $38,000, and that's wisdom. Riches, fame, beauty, talent, power, these are all tremendous resources which can be used for tremendous good, but the Scriptures say that wisdom is to be valued above them all, and the reason is because only wisdom is able to wield the power in these and other kinds of blessings and make them useful. Only wisdom can unlock their potential. So this is the greatest prize of all, to become wise. And in James 1, 5-8, James tells us that the good news is that it's absolutely free. He says that all a Christian has to do to gain it is to ask God. Verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We saw last week this word for generously is probably better translated as without hesitation. God gives wisdom without hesitation and without reproach, meaning he doesn't rebuke the one who comes to him seeking wisdom. He doesn't say, you know, don't you know this already? Shouldn't you know this already? No, the idea is he wants us to come and ask him for wisdom. Basically, he's eager to give, and James notes he, he gives eagerly to all who come and ask him. So anyone can do this. 
There's no, you know, while supplies last stipulation added to this. Literally any Christian can come to God asking for wisdom, and James says he'll give it to them. Again, this is the most valuable prize of all, and James says that God is just giving it away for nothing. That's great news. That's terrific news. I mean, this is, the, this is the sweepstakes to end all sweepstakes. The prize being offered is the most valuable prize to all, and all a person has to do to win is enter. I mean, does it get any better than that? Well, today we learn that just like any other grand sweepstakes, there are conditions to this promise, and only eligible participants may apply. What are those conditions? That's what I want to explore with you this morning from James 1, 5 to 8. The topic, once again, is how to become wise. And in this passage, James issues two commands that inform us of how we can gain the wisdom we lack. Again, we looked at the first command last week. Verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That's the first command, the first instruction that James has to offer us. If you want to become wise, then you need to ask God. We saw last week, wisdom is understanding. It's the ability to make knowledge useful. This means that the one who is wise understands the world as it really is. And since God is foundational reality, since He is the creator and designer of all things, since He upholds all things by the power of His word, then this means that the one who is truly wise seeks God. Since all truth is going to be framed in relation to His character and nature. So God is the starting point for wisdom. He's the starting point for understanding. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That statement makes sense, because reality is defined by God. This means that if someone wants to become wise, then they'll go to the source of perfect wisdom, which is God. And then again, as we saw, James tells us that when a person does this, when they go to God to seek wisdom, God's eager to respond. He's eager to answer their request. This week in verses 6 to 8, James now uses a second command to attach a condition to this promise. And and I think this is sort of curious considering what James just said in verse 5 regarding the attitude with which God gives. He says that God gives to all without hesitation, without reproach, and now he says, but he does this on one condition. That seems rather strange. How can God be so eager to give and then start attaching conditions to this promise? Doesn't that apply, imply that there's some hesitation in His giving? So what's the deal here? Does, does God give wisdom freely or not? Is wisdom something we simply have to ask for, or is it something we have to earn? That's an important question. Do we have to somehow win God's favor for Him to grant us wisdom? Or does he give it freely? The answer to that question is important because as we we saw last week, wisdom is essential to our sanctification. It's what instructs us regarding how we ought to respond in righteousness when the pressure starts to turn up. It frames all of our life from God's perspective, from the perspective of His holiness and His grace and how all that plays itself out in history so that when we're faced with a trial, we know how to respond in a way that aligns with what is true which is what righteousness is. It's acting in accordance with what is right or true. So is this something that we have to earn from God? Do we have to become worthy of that knowledge? Is that what James is doing with this condition? And if so, then what is that? How do we earn the knowledge 
from God that sanctifies us? Or does James mean something else by this condition? The answer to that question is absolutely vital to your sanctification. In fact, I would venture to say that if you're struggling to grow as a Christian, if you feel like you're often just spinning your wheels as you try to become like Christ, going nowhere fast, then the answer James gives here may very well explain why. You need to know how this works. So how does this work? What's the condition that we have to meet to receive the wisdom that God has to offer, and why is it there? James gives us the answer in verses 6 to 8. Verse 5, again, he says, If you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Verse 6 to 8, he says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what's the condition that James attaches to the promise in verse 5? We see the answer in verse 6. If you wish to be wise, you must not only ask God, but verse 6, you must ask without doubting. You must ask without doubting. The key word in this passage, the one, the one that I think ties this all together, is the word doubt in verse 6. It's the word diakrino in the Greek. You, you, get the mini, the, you get the meaning of this word right, and, and all of what James says, I think, in verses 2 through 8, is going to start to come together. For some perspective, the word krino in the Greek means I judge, or I decide, or I determine. The word diakrino, therefore, means something more like to make a distinction or to differentiate. It can be translated as doubt, but it doesn't mean doubt in the way that we're probably inclined to think about it. For most people, when they speak of doubt, they're referring to uncertainty. Doubt is the opposite of confidence. And if that's what James is saying here, then he'd be saying that when we ask for wisdom, then we must ask in confidence. We must ask believing that God will answer us, because if we don't, if we're not certain in our minds that God will hear us, then He won't answer. Presumably such doubt would be an insult to God or something like that, and the idea is that God refuses to answer such a person because they've offended Him. I think you could probably imagine the the problems, the kinds of problems that would come up if this is the thing that James was trying to tell us. After all, not only would that mean that God's mercy, which in this case is expressed in the gift of wisdom, not only is that mercy awarded on the basis of our righteousness, our faith, our ability to believe, meaning it would be awarded on the basis of our merit rather than on the basis of grace. But on top of that, we would never have any confidence that God would ever hear us. Since when are any of us ever free from all doubt? That would be the implication of what James is saying here. You have to ask in faith with no doubting or you won't get anything. Well, if that means faith in the sense of confidence, doubt in the sense of uncertainty, then none of us would ever have reason to think that God would answer this request because we're all going to struggle with some measure of doubt virtually every moment of our lives. And most especially, we're going to struggle with doubt in the contexts that James is talking about here, which, if you recall, according to verses 2 through 4, are trials. I mean, who isn't going to have at least some lingering question about the, the goodness or the wisdom of God in the back of their minds during trials? 
This is especially true considering what James is saying in verses 2 through 5. Remember, James is talking about how we need to persevere in faith during trials so that we can learn steadfastness because this steadfastness makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea is that we have to fight through the doubt, right, in order to learn righteousness. As we get to verse 5, we we learn that wisdom is one of the things that we lack, which allows us to respond to the trials in righteousness. The idea is that the wisdom we're asking for in verse 5 is going to play a critical role in this perfecting process that's taking place in verses 2 through 4. In short, the the whole idea in verses 2 through 5 is that we don't have perfect faith. That we need to persevere in trials in order for our faith to be purified. And that the wisdom we're asking for is one of the things that we lack, which we need in order to have our faith perfected. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The the, the whole point of asking for wisdom in in verse 5 is to help us in our doubt. So why would James ever say in verse 6, basically, ask for wisdom in confidence, considering the context? If that's what he's saying in verse 6, then we're all doomed. Because the whole reason we should be asking for wisdom in verse 5 is because we lack, is because of the lack of faith that we're wrestling with in verses 3 through 4. Are you following me here? This doesn't make any sense for James to mean doubt in the mere sense of uncertainty. Even further, we know from other sections of the scripture that God doesn't withhold his mercy on the sheer basis of a little or, or really even much uncertainty. In Mark 9, for instance, after Jesus' disciples failed to cast a demon out of a young boy, the, the, the boy's father pleads with Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He, he hesitates a little bit. He, if, you, if you notice how he phrases that, he says, if you can do anything. He's not sure that Jesus can. After all, his disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus seizes on that doubt. He says to the man, he says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And he says, you just need to have faith, right? That's what he says, is, of course God can do this. Listen to what the man said in reply. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Did you catch that? He tells Jesus he does believe while at the same time recognizing that his faith is a flawed faith. It's an imperfect faith. He believes, but he has doubts. And so he asks Jesus to help him with that as well. That's such an honest prayer. It's the prayer of a, of a truly desperate man who's ready and willing for God to do anything he needs in his heart to help him help his son. And what does Jesus do? Does he respond to the man and say, well, I tell you what, uh, you come back later once you have that all figured out because you have to ask in faith with no doubting or else God will not help here. That's not what Jesus says, Right? No, he heals the man's son. And then according to Matthew, after that, he actually uses this moment to teach the disciples about the sufficiency of just a little bit of faith. The disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the demon, and Jesus says to them, because of your little faith. And then he clarifies, he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus says the problem is their little faith, but clearly the problem isn't about the quantity of their faith, since Jesus says even faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient to do the job. 
It would appear rather that it's the quality of their faith that's the problem, not the quantity. Because it's not the faith, right, that produces the miracle, it's the object of faith. That's where the power lies. And that seems to be more of what James is getting at here. For the one who doubts here, it's not the quantity of their faith that's deficient, but the quality. If you look here in verse 8, he speaks about this person being a, quote, double-minded man. The word there is daisukos. Daisukos. It comes from the prefix di, which means two or twice, as in carbon dioxide, right? It has one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. Dioxide. It comes from that, uh, daisukos, that di prefix. And then sukos, which comes from the same word from which we get the term psychology. The word is often translated as either soul or mind or something to that effect. In other words, this is a double-souled person. The idea is that just like the disciples struggled, not because they had a small amount of faith, but rather because they had a faith that was apparently fixed on the wrong object, they began to trust their own abilities to cast out demons rather than rely on God. So also does this individual have their faith fixed on two different objects? They diacrino, they doubt, differentiate, make distinction, but they they doubt in this sense, in the sense of wavering. They go back and forth between two different objects of faith. They have two different hopes. In one moment, their faith is fixed on God. It may be a small faith, but it's directed wholly on God. And then in the next, their faith is fixed on some other idol. That's what James is talking about here when he says that they must ask in faith with no doubting. He's not saying that they must have perfect confidence in God in order for him to answer their request for wisdom. Rather, he's saying that small though their faith may be, the Christian must be fixed entirely on God. Again, to go back to one of the consistent themes of this letter, it must be a whole faith, a pure faith, a faith that is unmixed with any competitors in order for the person to receive wisdom from God. They must not have their interests divided whatsoever. They need to be wholly fixed on God, or else they will not grow in wisdom. They will pray to God for help, but they will pray in vain. How does this work? How does the double-minded person not receive wisdom from God? Well, I think what James shows us is that the one who lacks faith, lacks the ability to receive the wisdom that God has to offer them. In other words, the problem isn't God necessarily. It's not that he's unwilling to give. Quite the contrary. The picture that James paints is that God is incredibly eager to give, the, give wisdom to those who seek him. The problem is that in this instance, the one who's asking isn't able to receive that wisdom. If you note here in verse 7, James doesn't say that God refuses to give the doubter wisdom. He says, rather, that the doubter will not receive it. The word there is lambano, and it means something like to take up, or, or to catch, or to accept. If you're thinking of someone throwing a ball to someone else, lambano is what the person catching the ball does. They receive it. James is saying that the one who doubts will not receive anything from the Lord. And the emphasis seems to be not on the God who gives without hesitation, but on the man who receives God's gifts with much hesitation. 
If I could put it this way, God is throwing, He's attempting to give the Christian wisdom. I mean, He's allowing these trials to come into this person's life, which are aimed at making them perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, but this person isn't catching it. God's throwing the ball and it's bouncing off their chest. Their hands aren't even up. They don't see it coming because their eyes aren't looking at God. They're over here, right? They're looking this way, and God's over on this side. They're somewhere else. They're completely oblivious to the good God is meaning to produce in their life. You can get the picture of this, right? This is one of James' major concerns in this book. Again, and again, he wants Christians to be undivided in their character, to have a righteousness that is completely consistent with the faith they have in Christ. And this begins by being wholly devoted to God. You go to chapter 4, and, and James is going to rebuke them for their prayers because they're, they're praying for idols. They're asking God to help them find satisfaction in idols. And he's going to tell them, in chapter 4, he's going to say, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But what he's saying here is that you can't receive the wisdom that God has to offer when your interests are divided. Go back for a moment to what I said wisdom is last week. If you were here, then, then you probably remember that I spent the vast majority of my message just trying to show you that according to the Bible, righteousness is wisdom. We tend not to think that way. Even after we're saved, we, we often tend to view righteousness in more or less legalistic terms, meaning we see it merely as something that we have to do in order to be pleasing to God. This is apparently even why some Christians think that we don't need to think about righteousness anymore after we're saved. After all, they reason, aren't we declared righteous on the basis of our faith in Christ? And I think that there's no usefulness, then, in righteousness. That's because they think the only reason we should be righteous is so that we don't go to hell. And this really expresses a deficiency in their view of God's commands, of His love even. Because when they view His commands this way, they see them as more or less detached from our relationship with Him. They don't see them as serving any real purpose other than to show us that we don't measure up. And and that's true, by the way. That is one purpose of God's commands, to reveal our sin. But it's not the only purpose. It's not the only purpose. God's commands are summarized primarily with the statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Meaning that these commands are an expression of our love for God. That's what Jesus says, right? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The idea is that, that these commands are an expression of our ongoing relationship with God. Well, that relationship works two ways. It's, just not that, it's not just that we express our love for God through obedience to His commands. It's that He expresses His love to us through these commandments as well. What I mean is, is that as we keep God's commandments, what we find is that God blesses us through our obedience. Obedience is one of the means through which God extends blessing to us. And in this sense, wisdom is righteousness. If you want to be blessed, then according to the Scriptures, you'll seek righteousness because that's where true joy and blessedness is found. But you have to keep in mind how this blessing works. 
Again, we've talked about this over the past few weeks. The, the reason why obedience is a blessing is because obedience requires faith. And it's as we express faith that we're drawn closer and closer into fellowship with God as we see Him remain faithful to His promises over and over again. This is why we said we can count it joy whenever we encounter trials. It's because trials have this purifying effect on our faith that makes it more and more resolute, more and more steadfast. You know, Israel has to be brought into slavery, right? Before they get to witness the power of God in the ten plagues. They have to be pinned in at the Red Sea before they get to see the waters planted and Pharaoh's chariot swallowed up. They have to be brought into the desert and made to hunger before they receive manna from heaven. As sinners, the way we learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, is by being brought into the wilderness. And that is the gift that God means to give us. Not mere physical realities, not just bread. He means to give us what the bread represents, and that is the miraculous provision from the hand of the Lord. God means to give us faith. He means to make us rely wholly on Him because that is where, to use the words of Paul, the peace which surpasses all understanding is found. It isn't found in worshiping idols. It's found in worshiping God. Listen, it's found in repentance unto faith. When our faith is fixed on the eternal and unchanging God, it is then that we can find contentment in each and every circumstance. And that, my friends, is true wisdom. That is something that all the gold in the world cannot buy. So remember, that's the wisdom that James is talking about here, the wisdom of righteousness, the wisdom that comes through trials as a person perseveres in obedience and is increasingly strengthened in their faith. The gift, once again, is God, and it's produced through faith. So now let me ask you, is the double-souled man going to be able to receive that gift? Understand the picture that James presents here. This isn't a person who is wholly rebellious against God. It would seem that the idea is that they like God. To some degree, it's even fair to say that they want to have a relationship with Him. It's just that they don't want to have a relationship with Him alone. Are you catching what I'm saying here? This isn't someone who hates God. There's someone who likes Him. They just like a lot of other stuff too. They want both God and that. Again, they're double-minded, double-souled. Are they going to receive the wisdom that God desires to give to them? What do you think? James says the answer is no. You know what he compares this person to? He compares them, he compares them to the waves of the sea. I like the way one commentator describes this. He says, The picture here is not of a wave mounting in height and then crashing to the shore, but of the swell of the sea, never having the same texture and shape from moment to moment, but always changing with the variations of wind direction and strength. You know what that looks like, right? You've been to the ocean maybe, or at least to a large lake, and you've seen what happens when the wind blows across the surface. The wave picks up, and the face of the water, it's never stable. It's all choppy. That's what a person with a divided interest is like. They can't make up their mind. 
One moment their attention is fixed on God, and the next minute it's back on their idol. The trial comes in, it stirs up their life, and it threatens their idol. They don't know which way to go. One minute they're surrendered to God, they're walking in faith, pursuing Christ as they try to learn how to depend on God for their bread. The next minute they're saying, we're going to die out here, let's go back to Egypt. You know why that's a problem? Why that sort of divided attention is a problem? It's a problem because of what we saw back in verses 3 and 4. It's steadfastness, right, that's supposed to have its full effect, making the, perf- the Christian perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's steadfastness that produces that result, and this person isn't steadfast. They're unstable. So they never persevere long enough to see the fruit of the trials that God is bringing into their life. In short, they learn nothing. They learn nothing because they can never persevere long enough to learn the types of lessons that they are to learn through trials. Some trial sweeps into their life, and because it isn't God that they really desire with their whole heart, they're unable to receive it with thankfulness. Or maybe they do receive that trial with thankfulness, but only for a little while. As the trial continues, all they can see is how their idol is threatened by the trial and they become embittered by the suffering. Instead of seeing God's faithfulness and love, they believe they've been forsaken. They cry out to God and they ask, Where are you, God? Why don't you love me anymore? The trial doesn't make any sense to them. It's confusing. And so they struggle to persevere in faithfulness long enough to see the result. Their idol causes them to do that. Either that happens or, or, or the trial sweeps into their life and because they don't, don't truly desire God, the obedience that He demands in that moment appears perplexing and unnatural. An enemy treats them harshly and their first reaction won't be to show grace but to hit back. Because their thinking is not framed around God, the, the wisdom of righteousness is hidden from them. They don't see it. They don't see it, nor do they understand it, even when it is revealed to them. Again, the enemy treats them harshly, and when they read Jesus' instructions about what they're supposed to do in that situation, it makes no sense to them. Love my enemies, they wonder. Sacrifice my rights, why would I ever do that? That's only going to hurt. They think that because they fail to see how they can learn to comprehend the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ by, in the words of Paul, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions point is they never learn they never learn because god not not because god is hesitating to give them wisdom but because they're hesitating to receive it the offer is extended but their hands are closed they don't want the gift that god has to offer them this is why james attaches the condition to the promise the point he's trying to make is not that we have to have faith in order to merit god's favor no god's favor to his children is unconditional It's unconditional because it's based on the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer separates the believer from God. They've been adopted into His family by faith. They've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They are now co-heirs with Him. And as God's children, He desires to bless them richly. The issue is that their idolatry makes them unable to receive the blessing He has to offer. Kind of like the shooting contest with the student from Louisville. Their condition has made them ineligible to receive the prize. I think if many Christians were to pause and ask themselves, why am I stuck? Why does it seem like I try and try and try and I never grow? This might be the answer. 
Jesus warns us. He, he says in Matthew 6, He says it specifically with regards to money, but the principle applies much further. He says, listen to this, by the way, how close this is to James. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, and the word here is apelous, it's the form of the word that James uses for generously back in verse 5. It literally means single or sincere. If the eye is healthy, as in single or sincere, the point is that the eye is fixed on one thing. There's no double vision. It's clear. Jesus says if your eye is healthy, clear, if it's single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, meaning if it's in poor condition or if it's sick, your whole body will be full of darkness. And note the implications of this statement. It would seem as if it ties back to wisdom once again. Jesus says that the one whose vision is singular will be full of light. They will be able to see. They will have understanding. Whereas the one whose eye is bad will not. They're blind. Jesus then says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's impossible to serve two masters at the same time. Either one has ultimate control over your life or the other one does. You can't have it both ways. You try to serve two masters at the same time and all that's going to result is confusion. That's like if you've ever had two bosses. I don't know if any of you have ever had two bosses, but if you have, it's confusing. They'll tell you to do two different things and you don't know who to follow. It's incredibly confusing. So it is if you try to fix your eyes on two different objects at the same time. All that results is blurred vision. You can't do it. And this is the problem for many Christians. Again, the issue is not that they don't love God. They do. They do love God. Christ has made them alive. The Spirit convicts them of the truth of God's Word. Their love for God is sincere. It's just that they love other things too. They're trying to keep their eyes fixed on two different worlds. They have have one eye on Christ in heaven, and then they have another on an idol here on earth. And they're never going to experience the wisdom of righteousness so long as they live this way. You can't seek prestige from men, for instance, and still be perfected in your wisdom. Because as soon as your faith starts to hinder that prestige, you'll begin to waver. You'll hesitate to remain faithful, and you'll end up going back and forth between trying to serve God and trying to receive praise from men. This happens all the time. This type of thing. You know, the, the, the Christian businessman, he goes to work and he, and he genuinely loves Christ. But he loves money as well. And so he attends church and he learns doctrine and theology, but from Monday to Friday, he's living for the next promotion. He tries to fulfill his responsibilities as a husband and father, but when the pressure turns up at work and he has to choose between working long hours to earn the next promotion and fulfilling his responsibilities at home, he chooses the promotion. 20 years pass where he makes this decision over and over again and he got the promotions. But not only do his wife and kids perhaps struggle spiritually, but even his own relationship with God seems distant. There's no mystery why, right? Jesus said it plainly. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. This man's heart was fixed on earthly treasure and so he invested in that rather than on the heavenly 
There was opportunity for growth in turning down the drive for career advancement. Had he chosen instead to fulfill his responsibilities as a husband and father, he would have not only learned how to find satisfaction in God rather than wealth as he struggled against his avarice, but God may very well have shown him the superior blessing that comes with heavenly treasure as his family began to thrive spiritually. He may have struggled at first. His faith probably would have been small as he turned attention to his family. He probably would have wondered from time to time whether he was making the right call. But then he would have sought God for wisdom as he tried to understand how to fight his greed and why it was better to invest in heavenly things, the things that God was calling him to invest in rather than in the earthly. And God would have not only supplied him with the wisdom necessary to kill his greed, but he may well have done it by in part, by blessing his family spiritually. The superiority of God and his ways might have been proven as he reaped the reward that comes with a spiritually healthy family. In short, his faith could have been strengthened and his relationship with God deepened as a result as he fought against his greed. But as it is, that never happened because his faith was divided. The opportunities for growth were there. God was sovereignly bringing the trials that would sanctify him into his life every time he had to make one of those choices. But he ignored them all because he thought he could have them both. He tried to add his love for money on top of his love for God. He tried to leave room for that in his life, thinking that he didn't really have to make a choice between the two. But he did have to make a choice because like Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And so he did not become wise. He did not grow. Steadfastness did not have its full effect. All this time he was praying for sanctification, praying for growth. But 20 years later, God still feels distant. Again, it's no wonder why. He was asking God, but he was exactly the kind of man that James describes here. He was double-souled, double-minded. The reason why God is still distant is apparent. It's not because God was hesitating to draw near to him. It's because he was hesitating to draw near to God. The wisdom of righteousness was there for the taking all along. He just refused to receive it. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians today who think just like this man. Because faith is so often presented as nothing more than a mental assent to the facts of the gospel as mere confidence in the promises of God rather than as a wholehearted commitment to the promises of God, to the person of God. There are many Christians who think that you can more or less just add Jesus to your life without it really disrupting any of your other desires. But that's not the way that Jesus ever presented faith. He made it incredibly clear over and over again, faith was an all-or-nothing proposition. Uh, There were people who tried to follow him, men like the rich young ruler. And he made it clear to them, you either leave everything to follow me or you have no part in me. I think probably one of the clearest examples of this occurs in Luke 9. When a man comes to Jesus and he promises to follow him, he only asks that he be allowed to go home first to say goodbye to his family. Jesus answered the man saying, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus makes it very clear. You're either all in or you're all out. You're not allowed to be fixed on him and something else. It can only be him. 
Biblically speaking, repentance requires more than just adding Jesus to your life. It includes, to borrow Paul's terminology, putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In other words, you don't just paint over the old rotting structure. No, you've got to tear the whole building down and start from scratch. Very often, Christians miss that part of the equation, and they try to pursue Christ in addition to their former lusts. James would say it's no wonder why they're struggling to grow. They're not growing because their interests are divided. They're double-souled, double-minded, and so they're spiritually unable to receive the wisdom that God would offer them. So I would ask you, does this passage describe you? Look at what James says there in verses 6 to 8. He says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Does that describe your spiritual life? Are you constantly shifting, constantly changing? Are you hot one day and cold the next? If so, then I would invite you to consider whether or not there may be some idols in your life that you've not confessed and repented of. That would seem to explain the vacillation. The reason you're vacillating back and forth is because, according to verse 8, you're a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. And if that's the case, it's no wonder why you're not going anywhere. You're not fixed on a course. You've not set your heart wholly on Christ. And so you're just, you're just drifting. You're being tossed here and there by whatever idol happens to be threatened by the latest trial. So does this passage describe you? If so, I'd encourage you to take inventory of your life and ask yourself, what do I love more than God? Or perhaps not even, what do I love more than God? What do I love in addition to God? Identify the idols in your life. Figure out where your true allegiances lie. And I'll just give you a heads up. It may not be something that's inherently bad. Fact is, many of the things that we idolize in life are are meant to be gifts that point us to God's goodness. Our problem is just that we tend to distort these gifts by delighting in them instead of God, rather than by worshiping God through them. Uh, Money, for instance, I brought that up a, a few times today because James is going to keep bringing it up in this book. Money isn't inherently evil, but we'll worship it instead of God. Many of our physical desires, likewise, are not inherently evil, but we make them evil when we idolize the pleasure they bring over our relationship with God. Well, in the same way, the idols in our life may masquerade as things that the Scripture actually tells us to give attention to. It may be your kids, for instance, or your spouse. For me, I'll tell you, it ends up being ministry from time to time. I'll delight in the fruit of ministry more than I do over the one causing the growth. That's idolatry. And when it happens, I have to tell you, when that happens, my prayers for you become distorted. I become unable to pray for you as I ought because my understanding of what I ought to pray for isn't being framed by my relationship with God. It's being framed by my love for ministry. Do you have something like that? Think about the areas in your life where you vacillate, where you swing back and forth between faithfulness and sin and ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to love here in addition to Christ? Then, once you identify that idol, kill it. Kill it. 
Confess it to God. Confess your idol to God and repent hard. And when I say repent hard, I'm not referring to effort. I'm talking about the degree to which you turn. Don't just turn 90 degrees from the idols. Uh, uh, Make a 180 degree sprint in the opposite direction. This is often where we get hung up. We try to leave just a little bit of the idol in our lives since we think it can't really be that harmful since it's only just a little bit that's left over. That's a mistake. Because even that little bit is enough to distract you from your focus on Christ and start the whole process of confusion over again. So don't play games with your idol. Kill it. Cut it off entirely. In the words of Paul, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You hear that? Make no provision for the flesh. Absolutely none. You need to cut off its food supply. Take away its oxygen. Choke it out. This means not only avoiding that sin, it means avoiding those things that encourage that sin as well. The world, for instance, is only too eager to tell us that sin is freedom and righteousness bondage over and over again. And depending on the idols you struggle with, it can do this in a number of different ways. So find out where your thinking is being challenged, where those influences are that are trying to draw your attention away from Christ, and then eliminate them. Again, be thorough. Be thorough, because as long as those influences continue to pull you towards your idols, you will not be able to receive the wisdom that comes from God. And you'll find it difficult to rejoice in trials. So identify and then eliminate. Figure out what's competing for your attention, and then be intentional about rooting out those influences that are feeding that idol. Do it so that you can grow in the wisdom and experience the blessing that comes in knowing God. So here's the promise. James says that if we ask God for wisdom, when we come to Him wanting to know how to be righteous, He'll give it to us. He's eager to give it to us. So if we want to be wise, this is where we begin, by asking God. So why don't we close this morning by asking God for wisdom? And let's ask Him specifically to disclose those idols of the heart to us which draw our attention away. Again, righteousness is a good thing. It's a great blessing to be strengthened in our faith so that we can behold the beauty of our God. The problem is that we have idols that ensnare us and draw our attention away so that when God offers us the wisdom we need to persevere, we're unable to receive it. So let's ask God to show us what it is that's competing for our attention. And then let's ask Him to show us what we need to do to repent.